Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi. Konnichiwa. I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm going to the World Parkinson Congress. This is WPC 2019, the official podcast for the 5th World Parkinson Congress. The event's being held June 4th through 7th, 2019 in Kyoto, Japan. This podcast is created in collaboration with World Parkinson Coalition and my other podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Each episode, we will explore some of the topics that will be addressed at the event and chat with speakers lined up for this year's WPC. Dr. Matt Ferrer is a professor of medical genetics at the University of British Columbia. He's made several influential discoveries in neurogenetics and is critically acclaimed for his work on the genetics of Parkinson's disease. I invited Matt, he prefers Matt, into the studio for a chat. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I say Parkinson's disease. You say? Movement disorder. I say genetics. You say? <laughs> lurk 2. Oh, oh, lurk 2. Okay. We'll get into that a little later. <laughs> I say Kyoto. You say? World Parkinson's Congress. And I say World Parkinson's Congress. You say? 2019. June uh, this year. <laughs> you excited? <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. A oh. lot of fun. Um and very educational. Well, uh, you are a geneticist. Uh, you're hunting for genetic connections to Parkinson's. Full disclosure, you've mapped my genome. Nothing to say here. Just smile big if my <laughs> genome was the most impressive you've ever come across. It's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still hear the question uh, quite often, is Parkinson's a genetic condition? Is there a clear-cut answer to that? Yes. It's not a genetic condition. It's um, every, everything in biology, everything that's human. I think that lives has a genetic component, and the genetic component in Parkinson's disease is 27%. <laughs> okay. So there you go. There you go. Um, so in those cases, how is it passed along? Is it from the dad? Is it from the mom? Do we know? Is it? Yeah, so, so, the, so the 27% is in aggregate, in, in total. Uh, that's the, the variability in, in the condition that can be attributed to a genetic cause. Okay, so most people don't have a clear-cut pattern of inheritance down the family line from, from, from their parents to them, for example. That happens sometimes, but those families are pretty rare. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it's a constellation of many genes, uh, several hundred working together in concert with exposures from the environment and with age as well. Okay, so how many connections have you found the team and I have, have mapped some of the largest genetic contributions to, to the disease, um, probably about half a dozen, may, may, maybe as many as a dozen genes for Parkinsonism. Okay, and how many are there? In total, uh, again, it's a difficult number to pin down. It depends how you define it. But there's about 70 genes for 
uh, Mendelian forms of disease where you can see it traveling down the family line for different types of Parkinsonism. So it's not all garden variety, typical late onset Parkinson's disease, some early onset forms. And there's about 210 genes that are risk factors and about non, 40 uh, non-coding RNAs. So in total, maybe 300 and a little over 300. Oh, okay. So that's a lot. That's a lot. More, more than most people probably think. Oh, yeah. So what motivates you to keep doing this? Why, why are you looking into the genetics of it? Because it gives us unequivocal answers. It tells us exactly um, what the issue is from a molecular point of view um, down to a single amino acid and a single protein. Uh, we can then go from that to understand what that protein is doing in a cell and what that cell is doing in a brain and how the, uh, the mutation that we've described or discovered uh, basically leads to disease. It's, um, it gives us a very uh, specific and, like I say, unequivocal answer. And then once you have that answer, do you believe that at some point you'll be able to create a cure based on the knowledge you get from genetic research? The whole goal is to predict and prevent. So cure is a difficult term, right? Yeah. Prevent. Um, prevent. I would like to prevent symptoms from progressing. I would like to slow down or halt the disease in people who already have a diagnosis. Um, I would like to prevent it in subjects who may be destined, for example, because of their genetics to, uh, to get the condition. I'd like to prevent, prevent it in those people. But to cure it implies that somebody already has the disease and, and uh, I can make that go away. I don't think that will be possible. When we mapped my genome, uh, it came back... Um I think I thought you said unremarkable <laughs> is what the term you used, uh, and, and and that's just pure potential because you're putting all that data into a universal database, yeah. and over the course of time, it may reveal some connections. But right now, it doesn't. Is that true? That's very much true. The case, yeah. So so your genome um, stays relatively static. The sequences of A's, G's, C's, and T's that you're born with are the sequence you have now. And uh, what's changing is our understanding of what that information means. And every day that a new person is sequenced, has their genome sequenced, and, uh, and that's linked to some characteristic that they might have, how tall they are, for example, um, that information becomes enriched if that information is shared. So what we're doing is, is basically uh, uh, looking at your genetic code and correlating it with those findings as more and more genetic codes become public information, if you like, online. Yeah, so people were like, oh, were you disappointed? You didn't find anything? I'm like, well, no. Like, for me, I'm, I'm participating in research, as many people in the Parkinson's community are, because we want to help Parkinson's into the future. And, and if we can plant a seed that has a potential of yep. you know, bearing some fruit 5 or 10 or 15 years from now, I've done my job. Yeah, so so most people understanding understanding and including my own is is is, really, is relatively simplistic. Um, we have twenty thousand three hundred and ninety genes, and there's a reason we have twenty thousand of them. It's because they're working together. Many of them are working together in different tissues in our body, and um, and they have to be working op- optimally for us to age successfully. And so, having a single gene that predisposes to a condition like Parkinson's disease is a very rare instance. More often than not, it's many genes working together. And uh, to understand that, to find those, we need many, 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 many people to take part. Uh, it's an exponent of the number of genes that we think are playing a role. 
universally, is there some hesitancy with people giving access to their DNA? You know, are they afraid people are going to steal their identity or they're going to use it against them for health insurance or, or yeah, those types of things? There's a lot of sensitivity about privacy, confidentiality, how the information might be used. Um, you know, it might be a, an issue with life insurance. It might be an issue with medical insurance. Um, there's a lot of hesitancy around that. And uh, I think uh, as long as the safeguards are in place that the information is, is used in a professional way where an ethically responsible way, where the information is, is anonymized or de-identified at the, at the very least, um, your genome is available to others, Larry, but only in aggregate. Right. They, 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 they can't... Um, clone you and make another no one can make another larry i am unique <laughs> <laughs> you, you are that <laughs> you mentioned L- lurk too when we first started uh, at wpc you're hosting a roundtable and speaking and in both events the title is new insights into the function of lurk two from a genetic point of view lurk two is what lurk two is the name of a gene it stands for leucine rich repeat kinase two so l-r-r-k-2 l-r-r-k-2 that's right and what can people expect if they attend your speech? Oh, I th- um, well, I'm going to try and make it as accessible as possible to to everybody. But it'll be a bit, a bit of a bit of a potted history of where Lurk Two came from. It'll be a little wonky, it. though. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, there'll be parts that will be uh, challenging for for for. Um, um, I mean, you're you're a nice guy and all, but I gotta say that there's moments where I'm like, uh, Matt, I have no idea what you're saying. Yeah, sometimes that, it's a problem for my wife. As but that's well. why they have different <laughs> tracks at the WPC. So that's right. if if you if you don't have that research scientific genetic brain where you can like understand all that, if you, if if you've not been trained in that, there's other options. But but what everybody needs to do is come up and say hi because you're just an awesome guy. Yep, that's true. <laughs> Undeniably, um, and, and and not to be intimidated by by esoteric terms, uh, um, strange language. I mean, don't be intimidated by it. Um, everyone's coming to Kyoto anyway. It's a it's a strange place for many, but it's a wonderful place. Get immersed in it. Well, let's talk about that. You've been to Kyoto a number of times. What do you love about it? I I love the uh, the contradiction contradictions in in a sense that you'll have a. Somebody's domestic residence, and beside that, you'll have a thousand-year-old temple, and beside that, you'll have a small kind of household, but electronics factory, and beside that, you'll have another <laughs> thousand-year-old temple, and 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 it's and this mixture of of old, very very old, uh, and and new together is 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 quite amazing. What do you uh, what do you recommend people who've never been to Kyoto do when they go? Take time. Take time and visit some of the temples. Uh, there are thousands. Uh, visit some of the temples and just take time. Drink some hibiscus blossom tea. That's always a good one. Okay. Um, and just relax. Enjoy the atmosphere. It's, uh, it's a remarkable place. It's a remarkable place. And so we're going to be in this remarkable place for the World Parkinson Congress. What do you, what do you like about the World Parkinson Congress? Why, why do you keep coming back? It's engaging. It's engaging for um, all people from all walks of life. So it's, it's a forum for professionals. So many of my colleagues go and it's a great chance for me to catch up with them. And they, they want to learn the latest advances. advances. Um, it's, a, it's a forum for, uh, for the public to go, just to learn about how medicine is, is changing 
and, and, and reacting to this, all this new information, um, whether it's from genetic sequencing or whether it's from AI, artificial intelligence, or whether it's from whatever the breakthroughs are in whatever the area of science. So, um, and it's a place where patients go too. Um, it keeps it real. I like to think it keeps it real. Um, everybody realizes they're on a mission when they go, and, uh, and it makes it mission-focused. For so somebody's never been to the WPC. I've never been. I was diagnosed after the last one. Uh, what should I expect from your point of view? Um, I think it'd be rather overwhelming. Probably uh, there's an awful lot going on, and a lot of it's concurrent at the same time. And you'll be uh, rather overwhelmed with what to go to and who to who to listen to. And you, and you may not know. Um, you know, you maybe think to yourself, which session should I go to? Which one would be best for me? What do I want to learn? And um, that may be the most challenging part. Okay. So I, I'd suggest you do some homework before you go. The program is available. It's online. I'd have a look at that. I'd navigate a course through it, um, theoretically speaking. Right. And then when you get there, forget all about that. <laughs> <laughs> and just enjoy the experience because I think you're, it's really the interactions. I don't think it's going to be the lectures that are going to, um, are going to be the take home. It's, it's going to be the interactions you have with other people, whether, whether they're public, patients, or professionals. Yeah, the relationships you build while you're there, the, yeah. the hallway conversations. Absolutely. The, having a tea with somebody and no. just... Getting that's, to know them, yeah. That, that's right, yeah. That's the best part of any conference, right? Yeah, it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's going to be very memorable. Matt, thanks so much. I look forward to seeing you in Kyoto. It's going to be fun. See you there. In Sweden, there's a magazine called Focus. It's like Sweden's Time magazine. Focus's 2018 Swede of the Year in Medicine was Sarah Rigger. She also has Parkinson's. So my journey with Parkinson's began in about 1984 when I was 13 years old. And I noticed that uh, my feet wouldn't tap in, in, in rhythm, in sync with, with the music I was hearing. Mm. So I noticed that my body didn't behave the way I expected it to. And that, of course, I didn't think Parkinson's <laughs> at, at no. that time. Of course, I didn't even think. Uh, I just, as, as any teenager, I just wanted to be like like my friends. I don't, didn't want to be sort of uh, different in any way. So I just didn't acknowledge it at all. You know what's interesting, Sarah? Now that you say mm-hmm. that, I was in choir in high school and mm-hmm. I couldn't keep rhythm. So th- if I had a solo, mm. somebody had to th- actually had to tap my foot so I could ah. feel the beat. And I'm wondering now, looking back, on wait a second. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sorry to have to bring brought that up in your head, but still, there you go. So when did the if diagnosis had, come? In fact, I wasn't cor- correctly diagnosed until 2003. Whoa, that's yeah. a long time. That is 18 or so years. Yeah, 20, 20, 18, 20. Yeah, so it's a long time. So do you but see to, that as a benefit, not knowing that there was a, a label for it? Or would, did that? Yeah, was that a, I, I, I think that if I had been diagnosed with Parkinson's in my teens or in my early 20s or something, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be doing all the stuff I'm doing. I wouldn't have, have tried to do a lot of the things I, I did try to do. Because I didn't know that I couldn't, that I was wouldn't be expected to be able to do them, so I did them anyway. 
So, so you went in. You became an engineer for a while. I, I am an engineer. I'm a chemical engineer, uh, and that was a challenge. I mean, doing the lab work and stuff during education was was quite a challenge with with the, with the rigid hands and, and 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 bad balance and stuff. But but it, it worked pretty well. And then you returned uh, to school, right, for a PhD? Uh, Ten years ago, I decided that I wanted to combine my patient experiences with my engineering skills and try to improve things for myself and others with chronic diseases. So I figured I could maybe go into and be a sort of like a, a an interpreter between researchers and patients in Parkinson's. Or I, I, of course, I was my natural thought. Uh, and then I, I, I went, I found a master's program at the Karolinska Institute here in Stockholm where I, that I applied to an, a master's program in health informatics. So I, I, I started studying there and a couple of years into that, I, or a few years in, I, I, I became a, a PhD student. And you're researching digital self-care for Parkinson's, correct? That's what I call it, yes. Okay, so how do you define digital self-care? So I see it as making use of the possibilities of technology and the World Wide Web and, and what we have around us digital, but not only sort of measuring stuff like sensors and stuff, but also the knowledge we can find and the, that we can access through the web and, and how we can make sense and, and understand that, how we can use that knowledge in our con- own contexts. So that's a very long. It's not really a definition; it's more a description. But right. it's 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 uh, it's a broad concept, I, I, in my opinion. How has it benefited you? So I wouldn't be as well as I am in my Parkinson's if I hadn't done all this work, uh, for sure. That's there's no 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 doubt in my mind about that. Uh, could I have done more? Maybe, but I actually don't think so. I, to me, having been able to devote all this time and all this energy and effort to finding ways to make use of knowledge for myself and others has been really, really valuable for me. So, so you, you are self-described as an impatient as opposed to a patient. When, Definitely. Huh? Why, why did you decide to take things, uh, take matters into your own hands? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I saw it as 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 specific as that. I think I just saw it as an exploration. What can what 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 could happen if I if I try to do this, or how can I, what can I learn from doing this? What really was key was the first time I used a finger tapping test to evaluate my medication effect. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that Parkinson's gives us slow movements, right? That's, that's even if we, I don't have the tremor that is so typical for Parkinson's, which made it probably more difficult to diagnose me correctly. But all Parkinson's have the slowness of movement. So uh, one measure that can be used is then sort of finger we can see it in, in the neurology test as well where where they see how fast we move our fingers but of course that can be measured also more or less objectively by using tapping on a screen of a smartphone and i i did that just to explore things to see what what i could learn from it and that turned out to be some sort of uh, stroke of genius even though i didn't realize it at the time <laughs> because because that was sort of the the, the starting point of, of of my learning about my own condition 
from doing that, I learned to observe my body more more consciously. And I think I'm more attuned to the functions of how, how my body works and how, how the medication affects it. So in, in, in essence, you have uh, set out to be the world's leading expert in your Parkinson's. Yeah, definitely. I think we all are. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's empowering. Um, it, I, I read somewhere where you, you mentioned, you know, you only see a neurologist once or twice a year. Yeah. And the rest of the time you're kind <laughs> of on your own. So how do you yeah. take this information and, and share it with your, uh, with your team? Yeah. So that's, that's an important question. And, and, and I might add that I, I see my team as not only consisting of healthcare professionals, but also my fellow patients, my fellow parkies. Sure. Uh, and, and I try to share methods with them more than, because I mean, the next, my, my fellow patients are not interested in, in hear, hearing about my exact sort of minute of timing of medication, but more of learning how, how did I come up with that? And how, so, so more, more on the method side than on the specific sort of data. Right. And and I'm happy to share that with anyone who's interested, uh, and 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 also with with my medical team, of course. But the medical team is 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 has limitations in terms of bandwidth, if you may, because I mean they they don't have a lot of time for each meeting. So I need to make sure to package the information I want to share with them in in, in the best way I can to make it easy for them. So that's part of it as well, definitely. So, so let's say, do do you in gathering this information? Are you keeping mm-hmm. a journal? Are you do you have a spreadsheet? Uh, yeah. So neither, or, or more a spreadsheet. So what I do now nowadays, when I sort of want to keep track of something, I I use a Google Doc. Okay. So I don't use all the all the notes I make, but I know where where I have them if I need to go back and check. Sure, sure. So if yeah. I if I uh, hacked into your phone right now, uh, yeah, are there like certain apps and uh, bookmarks and stuff that uh, are all related to Parkinson's that I'd see there? Oh yeah, for sure. I I think I've tried all the Parkinson's apps out there over time. Okay, uh, so give me one or two that you really lo- you recommend to folks. I, I wish I could, but I, I don't think any of them are really up to speed to what I want from an app. So oh, interesting. What, what, That's a yeah, challenge to the uh, to the world. <laughs> yeah, if if they want to take it as a challenge, sure. But the thing is, uh, so the, the apps I use most, Parkinson's related, are, are, are Google Forms mm-hmm. and Facebook. Because that's where I have, I get both structured and unstructured information flows of, of Parkinson's-related information, and, and Twitter for that matter as well, in sure. some extent. And also in groups on Facebook where I know that the information is Parkinson-specific. Okay, so if you could have somebody design a great app for you as it relates to Parkinson's, what are the features that you're looking for that you're not getting? Hmm... Access to, to to research papers. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and and research data, results from studies which no one has access to. But you said to wish for for, well, for something. Well, yeah, to, well, you know, why not? Right? Let's let's yeah. let's make it happen. We yeah. we're as much in control as anybody else, right? 
Yeah, we uh, sure we can do we can do it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, what advice would you give others with Parkinson's who want to take more control of their self care? Don't be afraid to be a, a, a troublesome patient with your with your medical team. Uh, <laughs> yes, stir the pot. S- yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, don't, don't, don't sort of alienate them because that's that doesn't help anyone. But don't be afraid to engage in 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 complicated discussions with them because it's it's your life and and you're the one who needs to be in control and you need to be be equipped with the knowledge you need to be that to to find control. Well, and I also find that um, you know the, at least my team. They appreciate mm-hmm. it when I speak to them as an equal, as opposed to with reverence. Like I, I like I'm just looking for answers, and I want solutions. And I, I you yeah. Know. And so, and I make I make them speak at my level. Like if they're speaking over my head, I'm like, okay, you gotta maybe I don't understand. Take it down, some, you yeah, know, let's take yeah. it down a level. What are you telling me? What? And I think yeah. that's really important. I, we we need to be in control of of ourselves, and not just say, well, the doctors will take care of it. Yeah, no, that won't that won't happen, unfortunately. And what I found was over time, when I when I became more and more sort of knowledgeable and active as a patient, and, and reading research studies and engaging in discussions on online, I found that I could I could engage in more high level discussions with my neurologist on this these one or two two times I went to see him every year. Yeah, which meant that that those those that that hour per year actually gave me more in terms of for the rest of the year compared to when I wasn't able to be as engaged. Right. I, I find that when I have that time with my neurologist, I need to prepare for what I want to get out of that session versus yes, just yes. showing up and saying, what do you want from me? Yeah, exactly. No, be prepared. Be well read in terms of know know what's out there know what what you can expect you've been the ambassador at the last two world parkinson congresses uh, yeah. you, you're co-chairing the patients advocates committee for wpc 2019 with our yeah. with our friend tim hag who was on the last episode of this podcast mm-hmm. he says he's going to get, he's going to pack everything he needs in a carry on which i think is ridiculous you, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> you've been to the last three World Parkinson Congress. What advice do you have for people that, like like me, who've never been? What 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 do I need to do to prepare? Pack good shoes. Oh, good! That you're the first person to tell me that. That's important. There will be a lot of walking going on, and there will be a lot of long corridors to go up and down. Uh, so, good shoes is essential. Another thing which I found uh, by really, really uh, not wanting to know, but the importance of having extra medication. Oh, yeah. Both when traveling. So I know that the the advice, I think it's based on my experience from 2010 when the volcano eruption hit Europe from Iceland. And I was stuck in in London with my family with uh, regret. I regret to say it, but not enough medication to last because we were supposed to be over long weekend only. Oh. So so my advice is pack at least three complete sets of medication for for the for the for the journey in three separate bags 
for 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 uh, for sort of to have enough if if something goes wrong and if if a bag gets lost or something. So yeah, I think the the advice is have one on your person, have one in your luggage, and have one with the person you're traveling with. Yeah, that's 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 that is sound advice. But as, as also another important thing for for really making the best the best the most out of the congress is don't feel obliged to go to sessions if you feel if you have sort of met someone that you want to talk more to so me the, the people you meet are i would say more important than the science but of course we meet over the science sure. so i mean there's a balance there but i would say 50 percent is the content 50 percent is the people coming to to the same place Oh, okay. I want to make people aware there's a pre-Congress course on activism, yes. awareness, and roles patients play. And I think yes. that's going to be a really great workshop. I'm going to be there, uh, and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and a colleague of mine will be there from the Karinsky Institute, who I've been working and doing research with to present, and also my my partners in crime from the Parkinson Research Interest Group on, on Facebook, which is a group of... Uh, uh, for a group for uh, high-level discussions on, on research in Parkinson's, and we have we're proud and happy to have both very very knowledgeable patients on board, and also a number of the world's leading researchers in Parkinson's are members, active members, contributing to the group. Oh, that's amazing! That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sarah, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time and for all the work you're doing, all the advocacy you're doing and empowering all of us here in the Parkinson's community to do more for ourselves. And thank you for spreading the word. Each episode of WPC 2019, I'm going to provide a Kyoto life hack, a tip, a cultural insight, etiquette advice, language lessons. It's an extra dosage travel guide to get us all better prepared for our trek in June. None of us want to offend anyone or be embarrassed. So James Heron, the executive director of the Japanese-Canadian Cultural Center, has agreed to join us each episode. He's going to teach us a word or a phrase and provide some insight into the culture that we can expect. James, let's start with the word or phrase of the week. Well, when you're, um, when you're sitting down to eat, or just before you eat, uh, Japanese people would say, Itadakimasu. 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 Yeah. Itadakimasu. Exactly. And and it doesn't really translate into anything other than sort of I am about to receive or partake, um, you know, maybe the equivalent of saying, you know, bon appetit or something like that. Oh, very good. You do that every time you're going to eat. Yes. Yeah. Eat the dakumas. Exactly. When you do go to eat, if, particularly if you're going to a more uh, traditional type of a restaurant or something like that, um, it's probably best to allow your hosts to seat you, uh, because in Japanese restaurants, often um, seating is based on rank. So you don't uh, you want it's it's best to let the Japanese tell you the best place to sit. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then when you sit down, um, of course, you're faced uh, with chopsticks. If you don't know how to use them, do your best to learn them before you go. But if you have any issues, the Japanese will be happy to provide you with uh, with a spoon or a fork. Um, you know, whatever is required. And the important thing with chopsticks is not to stick them up upright in your rice, because that is that is something that um, is actually part of the funeral ritual. Oh, so to to do that at a at a uh, at a dinner party is quite 
inappropriate. Also, um, you should never pass food with chopsticks. That also is part of the funeral ritual. So like if I wanted to share some sushi with my wife, I wouldn't use my chopsticks to put it on her plate. Well, you could do that, but you wouldn't want to have her take something with her chopsticks from yours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Often, too, if you're if you're using a kind of a communal dish, um, people will sometimes turn around their chopsticks and use the um, the end that hasn't gone into your mouth for picking up something from a communal dish. Again, oh, that's, that's a good just idea. More hygienic. Yeah. Uh, in Japan. Particularly when you're eating noodles, it's okay to slurp and make noise. Oh, good! Finally, you don't. I mean, you don't have to, but certainly don't judge your um, don't judge your Japanese hosts as having poor manners if they're slurping. Um, it's just considered. Uh, it shows that they're enjoying the meal, and it's also thought that bringing a, li- a little air in with the noodles um, uh, helps to to bring out the taste. Oh, okay. It's kind of like uh, when they do wine tasting, they try to get air into it. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that may be, may be worth pointing out is um, sushi, is uh, it can be eaten with chopsticks, but it's also often a hand food. So you can eat sushi with your hands. Oh, okay. And uh, Japanese tend to, if you're going to, the part that you're going to dip into the, uh, into the soy sauce, you should dip the, the actual fish portion as opposed to the rice portion in. So you sort of almost have to turn over the sushi. The, the Japanese don't pour soy sauce on anything, on, on the rice or on sushi. It's usually uh, things are dipped into the, into the soy sauce. Okay. Oh, I'm going to need to work on my soy sauce habits. Thanks, James. We'll be sure to post these words, pronunciations, and cultural insights on the show notes. From Curious Cast and the World Parkinson Coalition, this is WPC 2019. Special thanks to Matt Ferrer and Sarah Rigger, who serve the Parkinson's community, and James Herron, all of whom joined us today. Visit WPC2019.org to learn about the upcoming Fifth World Parkinson Congress, a global Parkinson's event that opens its doors to all members of the Parkinson's community, including those of us living with the disease. Follow WPC on Twitter at WorldPDCongress. If you'd like to help spread the word about this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free. Search WPC 2019 and When Life Gives You Parkinson's. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca and WPC2019.org. You can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up at Parkinson's Pod or email ParkinsonsPod at CuriousCast.ca. WPC 2019 is written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Dila Velasquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. I look forward to seeing you in Kyoto. Matashta. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.